along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, Stephanie Burke's down in Tennessee, so she won't be with us tonight. But we are here with you to talk about the paranormal, as we will be pretty much each and every week now going forward, because our paranormal Christmas is over. All the fun stuff that we've been doing, it's all over. It's all done. Now we're just back in the studio, which is, you know, we enjoy that too, but it's not the same as being out there and, and meeting the people, which we've been doing a bunch of different stuff. Uh, I haven't even asked you, Matt, how was the Paroween event a couple of weeks ago? Uh, that was pretty action-packed. We had a lot of people show up and um, a lot of good guests on Skype. Um, we're actually going to be probably looking for a slightly bigger venue next time. Where, where was it this year? Uh, it was at the Seaport Inn. Okay, I don't know if I'm familiar with that. I believe it, it's it's basically... Um, I pretty much know the Hawthorne Hotel in Salem, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. it's right on the waterfront. But um, we had two separate sections, and we're looking for a place that can hold a little bit more people than where we can put the vendors inside with the people. It's just, Would you make them go outside? No, there's oh. another section that was... on. Uh, it, wasn't it wasn't that, that bad, bad that weekend. We, we, I mean, we walked, uh, I was a couple miles away from you yeah, at the you Carson were. Barnard house, and we walked to the cemetery that's down the street from there, and I didn't even have a jacket on, so it wasn't, wasn't that bad. Not like last night was, oh. and tonight too. Yeah. Both very cold. I wonder how many people are here for Comic-Con, Matt Costa, that are like, oh, is it always this cold in New England? <laughs> no, it's like, not, usually not this cold, but it is tonight. So it's a good night to... You know, maybe build a fire in the fireplace, grab a blanket, lay on the couch, put on Spooky South Coast on your TV through YouTube. If you have a smart TV, or now even if you have a Comcast Xfinity cable box, the Comcast box now has the YouTube app as one of the apps that you can find in your menu there. If you just search your app or hit your little voice remote button and say YouTube, then you'll be able to go right to the YouTube app on your cable box and then just search for spooky south coast you will find the live spooky south coast video stream and uh, this is this is kind of a, a different setup for us because we're we're going with see we we took all the all this hard work that matt costa has done for spooky tv over the years and like really this has been ongoing now for like five six years he's been building this video extravaganza of a show and we've now taken this technology and this ability and finally shared it with the rest of the station. So we have now... Are you sure you want to do that? I've seen some of the other uh, DJs in here. We have what's like now a permanent rig, though. So we don't have to come in here and set up a whole bunch of stuff anymore. And so there's actually cameras here that will be set up here pretty much all the time. There's a dedicated machine over there just for the video stream. So this is the future, man. This is the future. Watching radio as it happens... And now you'll be able to do it each week. So hopefully this means, too, that if all goes well, and I don't want to curse it, but it's not like coming in here. See, people complain. Let's, let, <laughs> That's let's, what people do, yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, not, let's not pussyfoot around the situation here. If you go into the chat room on Spooky TV before the show starts, we have a great loyal following of people that love to come and watch the show every week and engage in the chat room, but some of them are complainers. Some of them are complaining, oh, I can't hear it. Oh, I can't see. What's going on? Listen, we know that there's problems, and we do the best that we can around it, but it's not like the system is permanently set up every week that we just come in and press a button and go live. 
It takes installing cameras. It takes installing audio. And as you do that, sometimes things install right, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you have them ready and they work. And then when you go live, they crap out on you. And you have to try to fix it on the fly. Like the computer decides it wants to, you know, install updates on it. All these things that will come into play when we're doing the stream. So the fact that, again, I, I, I don't want to bash anybody because you're great, loyal fans of the show and great, loyal listeners and we appreciate and viewers and we appreciate it. But also, like, I know I say this all the time. You're getting the show for free on a Saturday night. It's, it's, it's not like we're charging you any money for us to, to enjoy to enjoy this show. So sometimes you're going to have to deal with a few little bugs and a few little issues. But anyway, the, the long and short of it is that with this new setup now, you shouldn't even have those bugs anymore. You're going to jinx us. I know. Yeah. That I, I, as I'm saying it, all I, can, the beginning. all I can think of in my head as I say this is it's just going to crap out in the middle of me giving the speech. But this will be permanently set up and used on a daily basis for all the different shows here at WBSM. So it won't be a matter of coming in on Saturday night, hooking things up, having something not work. It'll be constantly being fine-tuned. It'll be turnkey. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully that's the plan. And by having it going and having it running, that means that we can focus in instead on doing bigger and better things with it. So just having the baseline of the video streaming of what we've already done, now we can start bringing in more and more little tweaks. And now we can start doing other things that will be unique twists. So if we want to bring in more Skype video, if we want to bring in more, uh, you know, uh, YouTube stuff and things like that. So, you know, we'll be able to focus on worrying about all that because the baseline stuff is covered. So this is kind of our our first spooky South Coast using this studio technology so so far so good matt so good kind of I, mean, yeah. I mean it looks great from my end <laughs> I, I still wish we had better lighting in the studio but we'll work on that what these fluorescent bulbs aren't good enough there we do have some lights in there we just never bring them in but uh i'm hoping that as they build this they'll see the value in just like hanging some lights over there because they have them in the fm studio yeah so hang some LED lights over in the corner so that we can just kind of flood the room with some some brighter, wider light. But I like it. I'm I'm looking at the shot. I like it. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna the studio is gonna get a redesign. <laughs> They're working on that. They're actually gonna have uh, the the table's gonna be facing in a different direction here, and it's gonna be more conducive to having guests and interaction and everybody on camera. And you're we're just gonna, gonna jinx everything. No, like no, nothing's no. ever come gonna come to fruition because they're, they're gonna spruce all this up. They're gonna move the WBSM sign. There's a TV out in the hallway that's gonna go right there. It's gonna have the, the sign. Yeah, they're gonna move that okay. sign. They're probably gonna put it on the sign's gonna be over there, okay. and then there'll be a TV right here. And then, uh, because I think they were talking about putting the TV over there, but I was like, that's not a good Are idea. Get rid of this. The door. I'm, I don't know what will happen with this, but we're going to take down all these photos, and we're going to have a clear view into the booth. And, and, and Frank's working on a system where the person that's in that booth can actually talk to the people on the air. So, Mac, you know, like. Really? Yeah, like that's what normally happens in like bigger stations. Yeah. We just don't ever have to worry about that because everybody's kind of working out of the studio. You don't have to actually have people working in an auxiliary studio, but we'll be able to do that. So when Matt has to go and get people on the line, he can go in there and do it and then talk to me in my ear and tell me that they're in there. Wow. Fancy stuff. It's going to be big-time stuff. But that's the thing is, like, this, this station is built for what it's needed, and now with all of this new technology, we need to 
add more things. Scary parts. We were doing this before. The, you know, the station decided well, it wanted to do this. Well, they're only doing it because we suggested it. All this video stuff, we we gave them the idea. Everything, everything is because of us. Pretty much. I'm gonna toot, no. Toot. I'm, we're fully uh, taking credit for that. Yeah. Well, well, bear in mind we've been here the longest. Pretty much. I mean, and yeah, I mean we we've been here longer than all the people on WBSM. Yeah. Phil was here. And well, he yeah. was all over the place. I mean, Phil's been around forever. But we've been doing this show since before all the hosts were hosting their shows. So, and uh, and this was, you know, this. I I don't know how did we come up with the idea of having to do video streaming in the first place. I don't know. I think you brought it up because you saw it on. Did I, I probably saw yeah. something. I think yeah. you were like, "Hey, have you heard of this stick cam thing?" And I think like mm-hmm. you brought it up, and then we started discussing the possibilities of it. Maybe, and, and then, then we stumbled upon. A program. The way things usually... Stuck with it li- wait longer than we should have. <laughs> here's, how, here's how things usually go with the innovations that we do on this show. Is either Matt will have an idea and tell me about it, or I'll have an idea and tell Matt about it. But either way, what ends up happening is just me telling Matt to make it happen. <laughs> so, like, even if ideas are mine, please understand, none of them would actually ever come to fruition if it wasn't for Matt Costa actually executing those plans. And so that's what I've been telling everybody here at the station. Like, people have come in, oh, hey, Tim, I like that thing that you guys do with the video. I'm like, yeah, that's talk to Matt. Matt's the guy that does all that. He's the guy that's built all that. And he, like, obsesses over it and finds ways to do different things. And he blows my mind constantly with it. I do obsess over it. You do, but it's in a good way. It it pays, though. You do well with it. And that's that's where a lot of our uh, hang-ups come from as well. From is when I screw around with something and I'm like, yeah, and you're trying and I'm to like, eh, you know what? I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't. Like, I, sh- I shouldn't have tried that before the show. I should have tried it after the show. Like he mentioned to me the other day, not to not to give away anything that we might be doing here in the future, but he mentioned to me the other day. Uh, I think it's possible that when we're doing these camera feeds into this, that we can use your cell phone camera anywhere in the building as long as you're on the network. And my head just went. <laughs> What do you mean? You mean I can go be across the building and still be? He's like, yeah, I think it'll work. And so he's in here the other night, like, actually testing it and making Mm -hmm. it happen and making it work. See, because I can never leave here. Like, if I want to get up and in the middle of the show, I can't. Sometimes emergencies arise, especially after eating Sonic. Well, that's that's (laughs) basically what's going to happen is if you can make this work, there will be a show where I host it from the bathroom. (laughs) Might as well. Yeah, Yeah. because I can't. Because, uh, you know, I'll be able to. So I will actually do it. I'll actually go into the men's room, maybe the ladies' room, because <laughs> it looks better visually. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll go in there and I'll host the show from the bathroom the entire time. And that way there, when I'm talking to myself in the bathroom, it will actually make sense for once, mm-hmm. instead of the usual way. So in just a few moments, we're actually going to class up the show. <laughs> instead of talking about uh, talking in the bathroom and all that stuff, we're, we're going to be joined by our guest, uh, Jeffrey Kripal, who's going to be joining us to talk about some of his work. Jeffrey's a very interesting guy. He has a very interesting background. He actually uh, is part of the Department of Religion at Rice University. He heads up that department. We're going to be talking to him about, uh, well, about a number of his works, but the, the latest one being The Supernatural, A New Vision of the Unexplained, which he co-wrote with the legendary Whitley Strieber, who we've had here on the program in the past. And uh, we're going to talk about about this with him because this is a book where they're taking a completely new approach and a completely new look at the paranormal. And we've kind of languished in a lot of the same stuff over the last 
we've been doing this show now, what, it'll be 12 years yes. in January. So, you know, there's been a lot of hang-ups and a lot of – and sometimes I say, oh, I'm tired of – I'm tired of hearing things explained that way. I'm tired of hearing people say, uh, you know, well, we know this to be true because we don't. We don't know any of it to be true. Kind of everything that we are saying we're taking in good faith based on experience. I mean, last week we were out in the field uh, at an event, yep. at our mysterious Middleborough event, and when things start to go on, you know, uh, people are looking for their devices. And they're like, well, I don't know why this is happening because I'm not getting anything on the K2 meter. Well, because you probably don't have to get something. Just because we think that if there's a ghost, this happens, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen every time. Because there's plenty of times when we experience things that stuff doesn't go off. And there's plenty of time when stuff goes off that we don't experience anything. So I think that we take too much stuff at face value and don't really step back and realize, uh, wait a minute, we don't really know anything about this. So if you have something that's right 70% of the time, it seems to be true. If 70% of the time something manifests and you can quantify it with you know, EMF fluctuation or temperature fluctuation, sure. But that doesn't mean that the other 30% of times that people are experiencing something that doesn't happen, that they're not experiencing something. Correct. I mean, I was sitting in the dark in the basement of the Oliver House with no lights on, no devices, anything, and just seeing ridiculous shadow figures feeling people touching us, cold breezes blowing directly in our face, you know, all these different things that happen that even if the devices were on, who knows if it would have even picked up any of that stuff. So we'll get into all that in just a moment with Jeffrey Kripal. I'm going to try and bring him up here because I'm uh, I'm the kind of guy that doesn't, I like to live by the seat of my pants and not take a break <laughs> and just try and do everything on the air. Hello. Hello, Jeffrey. It's Tim from Spooky South Coast. How are you? Can you hear us okay? Hold on. Let me make sure I get everything in. What do I got to do? Put it in audition, right? Can you hear us now, Jeffrey? Uh, Yeah, I can hear you really well. I I assume you don't want video. Uh, No, normally we would, but we didn't have time to set it up. So we're... uh, we, we just got back from a Comic-Con, and I, I happen to notice that one of your work has to do with superheroes. Yeah, it does. I can tell you that, uh, you know, some of the ones that we saw today, they, they were they might have been heroes, but they weren't so super. <laughs> Sometimes I look at the costumes and I say, that's a bold choice. For <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's, what, that's what makes the convention so much fun, though. Oh, absolutely. And, and some of the work that people put into their costumes are just, uh, it's, a, it's amazing to see. And the themes that they come up with. You know, it's yeah. not just dressing up like somebody. It's getting all your friends together and coming up with a theme. Yeah. We saw an entire group of kids dressed as Toy Story characters to the point where the guy who was the uh, army man even had, like, a little base for his legs, <laughs> which was pretty neat. Well, uh, why don't I, I'm going to give everybody your bio real quick. Uh, Jeffrey Kripal holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University, where he's also the chair of the Department of Religious Studies. He's the author of Authors of the Impossible, The Paranormal and the Sacred, as, a, as well as a number of other books as well. And, uh, and, of course, as we mentioned, the latest book is The Supernatural, A New Vision of the Unexplained, that he co-wrote with Whitley Strieber. And i got to tell you, Jeffrey, right off the bat, how how does that work? How does a, a a working relationship, writing a book with Whitley Strieber work? Because we've had him on the show before, and how do you 
kind of take what it is that you do and compare it with his mind? Because his mind goes to all different kinds of places. Well, that that book is the result of a, a long sort of back history. I uh, I wrote a book in 2011 called Mutants and Mystics, which was on the paranormal in science fiction and superhero comics. And the last chapter is all about Whitley. And so when I was writing that chapter, I um, contacted him through a mutual friend and shared the chapter with him to try to get his sense of it, whether I had him accurate or not. And uh, that sparked, you know, a lot of correspondence and ultimately a friendship and in in the long term, ultimately this book. Um, My own sense of Whitley is that he has all kinds of fairly very sophisticated theories of religion and the paranormal kind of embedded or, or implicit in his books. And so what we tried to do in The Supernatural was pull those out and, and make them more explicit. He certainly is an outside-of-the-box thinker in uh, in all different kinds of approaches. And it, and it seems like you are as well, just taking a look at some of the works that you have. Um, I think we were talking before about taking anything at face value and that a lot of folks are – kind of taking things for granted in the paranormal now to say that we know that if this happens and this happens and this must be true when in actuality we don't really have any true definitions of any of it <laughs> right i you know i we can talk all night about that but i i actually don't believe any of it but that doesn't mean i don't think it's real or i don't think it's happening it just means i i don't find the mythical or religious or pop cultural frameworks in which people interpret it to be to be persuasive. So I think we I think we need a great deal of suspicion, but we also need a great deal of sympathy at the same time. Well, one of the things that I've I've felt over the years and and as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've been doing this show now for it'll be 12 years uh, this January and is that right or is it 12? Yeah, 12 years. I got to do the math in my head because it's been so long. But, you know, one of the things that we've realized is that People get complacent in their thinking, and this is a a field of study where we should never be complacent because things are ever-evolving, and and our understanding of these things that we're pursuing are ever-evolving. So I don't understand why some people just kind of flatline and plateau at a point where they say, okay, I think I have an idea of what's going on, and now I'm just going to go out and lecture about this and write books about this and, and try to go out and have other people experience this, when in actuality, there's... Always, for every answer that you think you have, there's more questions that open up. Right. I, 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 the, the situation is, is even deeper than that. I mean, my own view, and I think Whitley's view as well, is that the paranormal is all about the gaps or the fissures in our worldview, in our categories. And it's all about confusing us. Uh, and if you think you understand the paranormal, you clearly don't because it's about it's about us abandoning our understanding or our categories. See, I, I don't think it's a mistake that in the title of the book that the supernatural is not all one word with a small right. n. It's two separate words for a reason. Right. That's the key. That's the key point of the whole book. And uh, of course, when you just say the title, people lose that. They think it's one word, supernatural, but it's actually two words. Yeah. I mean, the the main argument of the book is that what people think of the paranormal or or the 
the strange or the the supernatural is actually natural. It's it's part of our world. Uh, these things happen all the time. Um, we do not have a scientific explanation for them. That does not mean they're not real. It simply means we're not there. Um, and that that we live in a world in which these things are are perfectly natural. So we're we're trying to make that argument in the book, essentially. I mean, it makes sense because there's a lot of things in the natural world that we don't fully understand as it is. I mean, we're finding, you know, especially getting into microbiology and microphysics, we're finding more and more things that are uh, new information that we never would have thought of 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And even just discovering new species on the planet from time to time as well. Like, we haven't mastered everything in what we think is the known universe, so why can we say that this is something that's supposed to be the unknown? Well, and again, it's more serious than that. I mean, the scientific method is very good at mapping and discovering and predicting the behavior of objects or the the, the behavior of things out there in space. But what the paranormal always involves is some kind of subjectivity or state of consciousness, which is, is in essence the enemy of science. I mean, science is all about attaining objectivity and removing all subjectivity. But the paranormal is all about collapsing. Well, speaking of which, he collapsed. <laughs> he collapsed. I think we just lost him there, but that's okay. We'll just wait a second, and uh, we'll we'll give him a second to see if we can... Rejoin with Jeffrey. What was that about Costa bringing up the gremlins? Yeah, the internet crapped out over here. Oh, really? We lost the internet completely? Oh, yeah. Looks like even my even my internet over here is screwy. Uh-oh. So for anybody that's listening to the stream and is like, wait, what happened? This is not us. This, is it my fault? Is it is it because I said something? It very well yep. maybe. We've actually been having quite a few internet issues uh, across the country lately. I don't know if you. Well, I saw a bunch of trucks rolling around uh, Route Six today. The so. other day, uh, Comcast had like a nationwide outage, so we were lo- we were losing internet here quite often. Uh, I kind of wonder if I should just kind of bring them in on the telephone. Yeah, let's take. But let's take a break while we have no internet. We'll be back with more Spooky South Coast in just a moment. I don't remember if I remember how to take a break. (laughs) All right. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. We solved the issue, we think, for now. We'll see what happens. Basically, all that talk that I had at the beginning of the show. (laughs) I told you. Where I said, you know, we got all this stuff figured out, technologically speaking. You opened your mouth, didn't you? Yes. I think it was a... Oh, we had a puck wedgie in the uh, in the back room there. Yeah, this is the internet went down, and when the internet goes down, everything goes down. So that's why the stream went down. That's why the audio on the radio went down. But now everything should be back up and running, and we can get right back into it with our guest Jeffrey Kreipel, and we'll bring him back on right here on the line. Uh, sorry about that, Jeff. It's just the the dangers of having everything tied into to one way of doing things. Yeah, no, it's all right. It's our world. Yeah, you put you put all your eggs in one basket, and sometimes that basket's handle's going to break. <laughs> so I, I, we we left off kind of talking a little bit about, uh, you know, the idea of 
these things, uh, what we consider to be the paranormal and the supernatural, to actually be part of the natural world and, and not having that that understanding of the natural world uh, to fully to be able to fully grasp it and embrace it and to to say that we've mastered it entirely. There's always going to be things that we that we find that we didn't know before. Well, and what I was trying to articulate is that <clears throat> actually, for all of our science, we have only mastered the objective world. All of science is really just about objects in space. It it eliminates subjectivity or consciousness to do its work, but we are conscious. We are forms of subjectivity, and all paranormal experiences engage those forms of consciousness. So they actually cannot be explained with the scientific method. They need they need other forms of knowing and other other methods to even appear, um, and that was one of the sort of major critiques I was trying to issue in the book is that we we naively think that science will eventually explain everything, but it can't because it it eliminates consciousness to do its work, and um, again the paranormal is all about consciousness so. That, that's essentially my, my critique in the book. I mean, and that's, you know, no pun intended, but I think spooky action at a distance comes into play when you're talking about things involved in the paranormal that, you know, the, it, it's, it's not, it's, like you said, it's, it has to be subjective. It has to be experienced for it to happen. I don't, I don't think that, and, and people always make this argument about with me with, well, well, what about all these surveillance camera footage where we see things moving around? But the point is somebody was observing through that surveillance camera. The act of right. observation was there, and I think that that's the case. I don't think that this stuff happens in a vacuum. I think it needs to have the human element for it to take place. That's right. That's exactly right. And, of course, there are physical traces, and there are physical dimensions to these experiences, but they only make sense in relationship to human actors and human observers. And I think part of that, at least the way that I've been looking at it for, for a while now, is that part of that is, like you said, it's not just uh, an objective, hard, scientific thing. I think a lot of it is emotional, and it, it's you, you can't quantify emotion. And so you can't quantify this stuff the same way you can't quantify love or, or fear or, or hate. That's right. I mean... To take, to take a simple example, the near-death experience, I mean, you don't get a near-death experience unless you have trauma. You have extreme emotion. You have extreme uh, crisis. You often have a loved one that's in danger of dying. And all of that emotional energy, all of that love, all of that crisis is what catalyzes the near-death experience. And if you don't have those things, You've got no experience. You've got no event to study. And you can't get that in a scientific laboratory. It, it's not going to work. And, and um, So that's, that's a difficult thing for people to hear because I think many of us in the modern world think that science is the only way of knowing anything and that if we can't establish something with the scientific method, it doesn't exist. But that's extremely naive and 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 obviously false. And so I think we need to, we need to really, really query that assumption. Well, my co co host here, Matt Moniz, is a is a scientist and, and Matt, you seem to be 
having a reaction there. What what exactly is? Well, I, I find it funny because he's he is right. Science is only going to get you so far, mm-hmm. especially looking at the paranormal. I mean, in science, you can set up all of these parameters. You can build the box, so to speak. But what happens in the box, it, you know, we can only quantify up to a certain point. He's right. Uh, once you start getting into, you know, the the imposition of consciousness into it, your my consciousness is different than yours. And, right. You know, it, your interpretation, you know. You can break it down into certain, you know, mathematical principles, but that only works so far. And and what's funny, Jeff, is is Moniz has been doing this for a long time. He's been researching the paranormal long before he got involved with this show. And in, when he came in in the early days, Matt, you were very much about the scientific method, and you were very much yeah. about trying to apply that to what it was that we were doing. And somewhere along the way, you've realized uh, it's not working. No, I, I realized that doing it, you know, by, I can do it for myself, but what I don't like or didn't like or uh, how, how do I put this, what I find, find disconcerting in terms of doing things in a scientific principle is nobody's doing it in a standardized manner right. while looking into the paranormal. Everything's, you know, going, which is fine. It's good to, you know, have various points of data. But everybody's got to start off on the same page, and you know that's how science works. It's dogmatic. It's it, it, it's in some cases boring, but you have to cover all of the all of those bases. And you know, right now we've got people going off in every which direction. All right, of course, Jeff. Can we all start looking at this from the same foot? I don't think that that's possible because everybody's going to internalize the experience differently. Right. So. When I say that the paranormal is not amenable to the scientific method, that is no slight on the scientific method. I have profound respect and even reverence for science. But because I have respect and reverence for science, I know what is not scientific. And I also know what cannot be known through the scientific method. I mean, I I work with scientists all the time. I, I, I know how science works quite well. And... So the reason the paranormal is not amenable to the scientific method is it's all about human beings. It's all about individual subjects and whatever it is they need at a particular point in their life cycle. And often these events intervene within trauma or illness or danger or at some transition point in the life, and they're... They're clearly designed to kind of send a message. They're about, you know, in the, in the language of the humanities, they're semiotic. They're about meaning. They work like text. They work like novels or films. They don't work like machines or or uh, or mechanisms or, or causal causal systems. They work more like movies or, or novels. So. If you talk to people who have had these experiences, they'll often say to you, "Wow, it was like I was caught in a novel, or I was I was a character in a movie," and and of course they were, because that's what these things are about. They're they're telling us stories, and and we don't understand what the stories are because we're the characters in the stories. We're, we're the characters up on the screen, and and so that that's what I'm trying to say in this book is that. 
look, we can understand this, but we've got to use different methods, and we've got to think about these things more like novels or films or stories. We've talked about this before. We've had uh, a friend of ours, Ken DaCosta, on talking about this topic before. You, of course, uh, study religion. That's that's your, your main forte. Do people look at the supernatural, the paranormal, these experiences, these things, through the same type of lens that they would a religion? Well, it depends. That's a great question. It depends on the person. So the basic consensus in the study of religion is that Strange experiences like this can be interpreted religiously, but they don't have to be. It depends on the individual or the community. But let me give you a simple example. Sure. Take poltergeist phenomena. So for centuries, from about the 16th century to the early 20th century, the poltergeist was assumed to be some kind of spirit or ghost that was angry or upset. So the, the German word means noisy ghost. And so things would explode or break or, or uh, fly uh, in, in the room, and people assumed these were ghosts. So they were, they were giving it a religious spin. But in the early 20th century, the first half of the 20th century, um, what happened was that researchers began to look closely at these events, and they realized that they all seemed to orbit around single individuals many of whom were adolescents and were often emotionally or sexually conflicted or being abused or, or in very difficult situations. And so they began to suspect that actually what was happening was that these emotional energies of this individual who was suffering was somehow, were somehow exteriorizing into the environment and expressing themselves in symbolic ways. So the poltergeist is all about conflict and emotion and anger and frustration. So things blow up or explode or fly. Um, the images are all symbolic of the emotional state of the focal agent. But what that meant is, is that we began to move away from a religious understanding of the poltergeist to a psychological or an emotional one. It was still strange beyond measure because we have no idea how an individual can unconsciously exteriorize emotions and make a picture fly across the room. That's equally bizarre. But, it, but at that point, we had abandoned the religious interpretation and had taken on a more psychological one. So, so that's just a long answer to your question. Well, uh... We don't need to interpret these things religiously, but historically we have. And what's funny is that some religious dogmas will allow for it, some won't. Some feel that the pursuit of the unknown is, you know, God forbid, no pun intended, but, you know, that you go into uh, a, a, an abandoned house and try to make contact with the spirits of people who might have lived there and may, or, or who may have died there, but yet, you know, that might be what you do on a Saturday night, but then on a Sunday morning, you're in church where you're talking to the people who have no longer been with you and praying for them and praying to some omnipotent power in the sky. You know, it's 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 very strange that, you know, one side of it is okay and, and the other side of it isn't. We we are told that people go to this great beyond, to this other plane of existence, but trying to make contact with the other plane of existence becomes taboo for some reason. Well, is well, going so to the church... there's a very church. long history there. I mean, 
monotheism has had a very difficult time with what we call magic or what we might call the occult or the paranormal. And the basic the basic problem is is that in monotheism, in the history of monotheism, you need to place all power and all miraculous abilities in God alone, not in human beings. And so when human beings attempt to access these abilities or attempt to study them in, in systematic ways, there's always this religious reaction that that's somehow inappropriate or, or, or bad or even evil. And I actually worry about that a lot um, because par people who experience paranormal things are often literally demonized by religious communities. And they then internalize those judgments and experience, ha have the experience in negative ways. So the interpretation actually ends up, I think, determining the nature of the experience. Uh, it's a kind of a loop effect. And so I, I actually worry a lot about that. And um, I think the more conscious we are of that, the, the, more, the more able we'll be not to do that, not to make those judgments. But I think part of that, too, is the fact that with the, the monotheistic religions and especially with the rise of, of Christianity, it's become the point where there's this one person, one human being that is uh, as close to the divine as you can get, who is the per. And obviously, there's the hierarchy of the church, but whatever. You know, it's the people that are in that position that are the intermediary between the regular people and God. And so, therefore, they're the only ones that have the ability to speak to and hear from God. And the rest of us kind of have to almost deify them. Uh, here on earth as our own you know kind of um, you know demigod in that sense where you know it's it's more about the power of the person that's in that position than it is allowing the people to have a free communication with this greater spirit this greater entity that they're supposed to be believing in that that's right so within the history of christianity at least the only divine human being was jesus nobody else can be divine nobody else can have these miraculous powers and the word supernatural was actually basically invented in the 13th century. And it was invented uh, to help with the legal process to determine who was a saint and who wasn't. And basically the reason they invented the word supernatural was to make this argument that when a saint or a holy person performs miracles, it's not really the person doing the miracle it's God. It's something above the natural order. That's what supernatural means. So the whole category of the supernatural was created within this monotheistic context to place all paranormal power in God and to deny it all to living human beings. Um, and that kind of resonates right down to the present, where, again, these things are, are basically demonized. Uh, so, like, I, I have a good parapsychology friend who, who always bemoans the fact that in all the movies Hollywood makes, the people with paranormal powers always end up getting killed or threatened. And that's a kind of echo of that, that monotheistic nervousness around these things. Right. It's, 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 it's putting that taboo on the spiritual interaction the same way they put taboo on pagan rituals and and uh, pretty much any other belief system other than the one that they were that they were promoting right. well of course paganism is the opposite of monotheism mm -hmm. 
polytheism is the opposite of monotheism. The tricky thing about monotheism, though, is even in the Bible, there's lots of paranormal stuff going on. There's lots of people with these powers, but <laughs> they tend to be ignored or or or, uh, or put to the side, you know. And and so the the Bible is a very very um, ambiguous. Um, um, set of documents when it comes to these things. And, uh, and, and from my, I mean, again, I'm no biblical scholar, uh, of course you are, but, uh, you know, I'm not somebody who has studied religion at any great point. I have my own kind of beliefs of what I think and things that guide me. But at the same time, I've, I've looked at some of these stories and said, I don't understand how anybody looks at the Bible and takes this as literal. I mean, as, as somebody from an outsider, it's just, it's a book of fables. It's a, it's, it's a story to get a point across. Right. So I, I had a, a professor in graduate school, and he used to say that all religious beliefs are, are unbelievable. And what he meant by that is that anyone standing outside that worldview looks in and says exactly what you just said. This is all fable. This is all completely unbelievable. But people within the worldview just assume it's truth and don't see that at all. It all depends on which worldview you're sitting in. Um, and to go back, go back to science, I mean, there are a lot of scientists who inhabit a scientific materialistic worldview, and they just assume the absolute truth of materialism. And they, in the same way that the Christian assumes the truth of the New Testament or the the, 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 the pious Jew assumes the truth of the Torah or, or you know, the Muslim, the Quran, or whatever. So we all inhabit these worldviews, and to the extent that we're inside them, we don't question them. Once we move out of them, though, they're obviously not universally true. That's the thing. I don't think any universal truth can be 100% infallible, because... Sometimes no. you move outside of that world. I mean, you move outside of the natural world, and all the natural truths that we think are, are true <laughs> no longer. Why can't they all this be is, true? This is why you don't really want to think too hard, because if it lands you in these quandaries. You, you suddenly become nowhere. Well, I love thinking about stuff like this. I just keep a bottle of Advil nearby. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's inevitable that eventually your head's just going to start to hurt trying to wrap yeah. your head around all this. So then if, if, if the belief that you're putting forth, the, the, the idea that you're putting forth in this book with, with Whitley Strieber is the idea that these things are part of the natural world that we just don't understand. and that they're, So let's just say that I'm the average Saturday night weekend warrior paranormal investigator. If, okay. I'm, if I'm just somebody going out and doing, uh, you know, researching ghostly activity at somebody's house, Right, and okay. I have these experiences. What is it, in in your viewpoint, that I'm having an experience with? If I'm experiencing temperature drops, uh, doors closing on their own, shadowy figures that I'm seeing uh, with my own eyes, what is it that you're experiencing? If if this is all just kind of something that we just don't understand? Well, no, I I don't think it's just stuff we don't understand. I think it's all I think it's real, and but I think that. What it is designed to do is confuse us and to open us up to new possibilities so that we can create new culture and new worldviews. So I think when someone goes into a haunted house and experiences a haunting, 
I think what's happening is they're encountering some aspect of the natural world that doesn't fit into our contemporary worldview, and that all of those things like temperature dropping or ghostly forms or doors shutting, all of those things are actually semiotic. They're, they're meant to send signals to the human researcher. Um, you know, they're meaningful. They're inherently meaningful. But what they mean is never quite clear, and I think what we are being called to do is to interpret them, to create meaning, and to create new worldviews out of them. See, I think these things are catalysts or prods for us to create a new world, a new culture. I don't think they mean one thing. And that's... I, don't, I don't think these are like treasures buried in the ground that we just dig up and the same person will always find the same treasure. I don't think it's like that at all. I think that these things are co-created and that we're, we're involved in their discovery and what they actually end up meaning. And, that makes any sense no, it does all. completely because that's exactly one of the things that bothers me the most about people who do quote unquote paranormal research is again, I don't mean to keep referencing them as, you know, Saturday night investigators, but that's what it is. It's like one time a week you might go out and investigate and have an experience or once a month, however it is that you get out there, you get out and you have an experience and this thing happens that blows your mind that is something that you've never experienced before and something that you can't explain, and it changes your worldview, but kind of just for that Saturday night. And then when you wake up the next day, you go back to the same way of thinking that you always have before, and then maybe the next Saturday night you go out and have another one of these experiences, but it never seems to resonate with people enough beyond just, I know now that ghosts are real. Like, but what does that mean? You don't understand what that means. By saying that right. ghosts are real, that means that now you have to start throwing away all these other absolutes that you thought your entire life. Right. But... But, like, this radio show is an attempt to keep processing it and not to let it just fall on a Saturday night, although we are talking on a Saturday night. Um, you know, so I, I think we have to keep talking about these things in public spaces and pushing people to take them seriously so that we can cre create a new world, as it were. Well, in, in, in that regard, then, is the sudden influx over the last decade or so of paranormal media helping with that? Is having shows well, where people are running around in the yeah. dark looking for ghosts, does that help open up our worldview even more? Well, I think it helps. I, I thought where you were going with that is television and film. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the paranormal, the, 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 the things you're talking about there probably do help because it's people taking these things seriously. I'm not sure all of the television shows and the movies about the paranormal are helping. Um, in some ways they are, because they keep it in front of us, but in other ways they're implicitly dismissing it because these are all forms of entertainment, and, and I think the cultural contract that we're signing on when we watch them is essentially, okay, we can think about these things, we can go to the movie or we can watch the television set, as long as we all sign on the dotted line that these are just fantasies. This is just entertainment. We're just entertaining you. There's nothing to it. Well, and, and as long as we agree to that, you know, we can have as many films and television shows as we want about the paranormal. But the moment someone steps out 
in front of the screen and said, uh, hey, I actually think this is real. These things happen. Um, I mean, they just get the hell beat out of them. Um, so I, I think we're in this weird situation where we're fascinated by the paranormal, but we can't yet take it seriously. Well, I think part of the reason for that, too, and, and full disclosure, I, I work on some paranormal television shows So, as a, as a researcher, so it's it's kind of like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here a little bit, but I've, I've been pushing for a long time to say, why do we have to make every episode scary? Why do we have to put people in a, in a situation where they're going to be fearful? Because I think that that continued perpetration of selling this as being something that is scary and, and, and a frightful situation and putting in the scary music and, and having people say, you know, what was that, all that kind of stuff, I think that keeping that fear going is holding people back from having their, their mind open to this even more. I couldn't agree more. That's part of the demonization. That's a subtle form of demonization. You can only talk about the paranormal now if it's horror, if it's a horror movie or it's the horror section of the bookstore. And this this plays out very dramatically among abductees, by the way, and the whole UFO world. So we have all of these abductees or these UFO encounters that were actually incredibly positive and, and, and even ecstatic and transcendent. And when they get framed by an author or enter a television show, they, they become scary. They become little bad horror film. Well, I mean, your co-author is probably one of the one of the cornerstones of that happening, though, through his experiences uh, and, and what he shared. But not all his That's experiences right. were Whitley negative. Whitley was became, um, yeah. really, really abused by the media, and um, by, particularly by, originally, South Park, believe it or not, but, but also by the general media. Um, he was mocked. He was humiliated. He was made fun of. And really, his only crime was he was being bluntly honest about what happened to him, some of which was very scary, and some of which was really quite beautiful. But, but that's the thing, is that the scary part, communion being the scary part, that's what everybody focused in on with Whitley, and they weren't following the journey that that put him on, where right. all of a sudden, later on, as he becomes, as he becomes more... I don't want to say comfortable with this because maybe you never do, but as it becomes more understanding of what's going on, it's he's gone from being this guy that's scared in a cabin in the woods to all of a sudden being somebody with uh, a, a mindset that never could have existed had he not had these encounters. Right, and, but even if you even if you read Communion fairly and deeply, it's a profound book. It's not just a scary message. It's a, it's a hopeful message as well. It's, you can already see both sides of the equation there. And you're absolutely right. As Whitley's journey continues, he really moves through this fear and this, this, this trauma into, into this really this transcendent space that, that is you know, fundamentally positive. Of course, the book cover doesn't help at all. That's the one that I, I told Whitley this when we had him on the show. I was like, I love the book, but I just want you to know, as soon as I bought it, I ripped the front cover off. <laughs> I just like, couldn't they, look at you it. You know, that was in some ways the most influential part of the book. Right. Um, that's what really froze that image into the public imagination. 
And and, and Moniz, uh, my co-host Matt Moniz, you know, he's worked with a number of abductees, and we've talked about it in the past. Yeah. Some people, it's a terrifying, harrowing experience. Other people, it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to them, and they can't wait to that's be right. taken again. Yeah, a lot that's of right. a lot of the people that I've dealt with have had positive experiences. Not not that's all right. of them. A, a lot of it starts off in a terrifying manner because it's unknown. Right. And then eventually right. as things progress, you become more acclimated to it and different facets of it start to develop. But, um, yeah. Uh, this it, is where, guys, this is where, I'm sorry to interrupt you yep. there, but this is where the study of religion is so valuable because in the study of religion we talk about what we call the sacred. And the sacred is not the good. The sacred is not being nice. The sacred refers to this energy or this power in the environment that when it interacts with a human being evokes both terror but also awe and yeah. beauty. So it has this positive side and this negative side. And, of course, that's exactly what you see when you dig into the, into the dirt here, get into the weeds here. Uh, hence your, your stories about the abductees. Yeah. One of the things we, I, I learned is uh, dealing with a lot of abductees, they're, they're great people and their stories, you know, will vary, you know, right. from person to person. But the media all treats them the same way. It's, yep. oh, yep. they were taken in the middle of the night and this happens. Uh, I worked with Bud Hopkins for a couple of decades. One of the things we found out, statistically, the most common activity that a person is abducted in is while driving. Okay, so, you know, the reason they use the the nighttime out of the bed, because that's the most scary stories right. that they can pull out. They, it, it's you at your vulnerable state. So that's puts the fear into people. And that's how the media right. exploits we're, it. We're, we're not so much afraid when we're outside of the house driving around uh, of being abducted as much as we are when we're in our own bed and in our safe space right. where we think nothing can get us. Right. Right. Playing on the fear. Right. Because I know when I tuck myself under the covers, nothing's <laughs> supposed to be able to get me, right? That's that's how it works. Well, except your wife. Yeah, that that little that little one half a centimeter piece of blanket protecting you from all the monsters. It still does. I don't care what you say. Yeah, it has since age six. <laughs> that and the nightlight. The nightlight will make everything go away. Right. It's it's funny too. I've realized this uh, as as we've gone along uh, through through because, you know. We do events, and we, we take people out into haunted locations, mainly as a way to keep history alive and to keep these historic places to help them generate some income, but also to have people experience their first touches and brushes with the unknown. And, and one of the things that I've noticed is that I will tell people that we're going to go down into the basement or we're going to go into the attic, we're going to go find a room where there's no windows and we can turn off all the devices and sit there in total darkness, in total silence. And I've realized that's not something that people do anymore. Like they, no, their watches no. are coming on, their phones are coming on. They just, they're not used to just sitting there and tuning themselves into their surroundings. Right. The only time we do that, of course, is when we're asleep. And, and when that happens, you know, we're, we're supposedly vulnerable to all kinds of influences because we're, we're taking ourselves out of our normal, you know, we're going up into those beta waves and kind of inviting anything else in that wants to involve right. itself. So w when we, we were, you know, talking along the lines of, uh, 
some of the comparisons between belief in the paranormal and, and a belief in the religion. One of the things that I've, I've heard happen from people who are both religious and non-religious is that they will say that there's, there's no such thing as ghosts, that there's no such thing as dead people who are coming back. There's no such thing as quantum physics, as uh, thought forms, anything like that. Anything that you encounter that you think is a ghost is demonic. It's something that's negative, it's something that's evil, it's something that's playing you to think that it's something else that it is. I don't see how that theory and that idea of, of an evilness can work in what it is that you're uh, portraying the paranormal and the supernatural to be, because it doesn't seem like if it's natural, it shouldn't have this inclination, it shouldn't have this designation of being good or evil. Right, I... I am by nature very suspicious of any language of evil or the demonic. I mean, I recognize that people have experiences that are profoundly destructive or terrifying and that the language of the demonic or the language of evil is the only language that comes close to describing what has happened to them. But I, I'm deeply suspicious that there are evil spirits out there trying to trick us. I I think when we encounter an evil or demonic entity, what we're often encountering is some aspect of ourselves or our culture that we've denied or, or walled off. And it's essentially haunting us um, like, you know, a dream haunts us, some, some aspect of ourselves that we, we need to deal with. So, I mean, that's sort of my baseline orientation. I, I don't claim any omniscience or infallibility for it. I just that's what I see over and over again that I I see people encountering aspects of themselves that are have not yet been integrated and that those things are negative. Or people are being introduced or being taken up into some transcendent state and to do that, their egos have to be temporarily taken offline or, or symbolically killed. And that's naturally terrifying. And they immediately interpret that as some, something demonic or negative. But in fact, it's not. It's, it's just part of the process. Well, I mean, getting back to the idea of subjectivity, and we've debated this here on the show before. I mean, good and evil are, to some degree, subjective. I mean, sure, there's a lot of mores that we look at as a society and say, okay, we think that these things are bad. We all can agree that killing another person is a bad thing. But evil and the degrees of evil are, are subjective because, you know, when you see somebody who is disturbed or what, however you want to put it and does bad things they don't always see it as being bad somebody that no. goes out and kills people like if somebody goes out and kills prostitutes they think that they're helping the world by doing that and so right. th what we see as evil they see as doing something good and it's it's all very subjective yeah yeah i just i i guess i just i worry about the human capacity to fear the unknown and to label it as, as something negative or demonic. I, I, I just worry about that. And I see a lot of religious, um, I see a lot of religious reasons to reject the paranormal, none of which I accept, but I, I understand where they come from. And I just worry about that because I think 
the paranormal at the end of the day is is us. It's it's our it's our potential that isn't yet actualized or integrated into into our lives. And I think to demonize that just keeps it unintegrated, just keeps it down, just keeps it from being actualized. And I that's that's what concerns me about it the most. I mean, there are people who have been able to look at this, uh, look through this lens over the years and, and be able to remove some of the stigmas and connotations that come with researching this. I mean, I know you you know, you know wrote the book Authors of the Impossible where you're looking at somebody like Charles Fort, and Charles Fort was able to look at this and say, hey, this stuff, it's, it's happening in the natural world, and it does happen, and it doesn't have all of these meanings that we're assigning to it. If it rains frogs, it just rains frogs. Right. Right. And of course, he arrived at his own sort of theories about what it was about, but he didn't hold any of them in absolute terms. He was very playful and very, very humorous about all of that. Um, yeah, I, I'm a deep admirer of Ford, actually, because of that. Um, but again, he was, you know, he was very suspicious of both religion and science. Those were the two dominants, as he called them, that had defined the world, and he was trying to move into this third dominant that hasn't yet taken shape. Um, so, you know, he was, a, he, was, he was a skeptic as well of, of people's willingness to believe this or that. And, and one of the most fascinating things about him is that, you know, he was coming, uh, you know, pe- people became aware of his work at a time when you were... In some ways, it was the post-spiritualist era where people are going in one direction or the other. You know, they were either true believers or true deniers, and there wasn't really enough of a gray area there. And he was willing to kind of work in that gray area to say, yeah. you know, it's it's happening, but we we don't know why it's happening. It's happening, but we don't need to know why it's happening. Yeah. And, of course, again, he used humor to mock all of the quick answers about what it was or what it wasn't. Um so yeah, I you know I again I think Ford's a real guide for us here. I wish more people would read him and and uh, take him seriously. Well, it used to be that in terms of paranormal research, there was a a, a good branch that was Forty in, in its approach, but that's kind of gone to the wayside now as the you know the social media paranormal community has become more popular, and it's just basically the people who are doing the research are the people that are copying what they're seeing on TV. <laughs> That's a mistake. It's uh, it, it does happen more often than not. I can't tell you how many times we go and do things with, with folks and we'll have an event and it's somebody's first time ever doing this and they expect it to work just like it does on TV, you know? Give you 15 minutes of history, 15 minutes to get acclimated and set up your equipment, and then by the half an hour mark, all hell's supposed to start breaking loose. And they, they have no sense that the television show is produced and edited and manipulated. <laughs> No, we, what are you talking about? That doesn't happen. No. <laughs> well, and also the fact that it's taking, you know, multiple hours and multiple days of footage and condensing yeah. it into this thing. I mean, we could sit around and wait forever for something to happen. And that's that's a question that I would ask you if this is part of the natural world and something that is supposed to be occurring, why does it happen so infrequently? Wait a minute. So right. you're saying so those... That's pe- a, yeah, that's a great question. And so I, I do have an answer to that. My my own feeling is that um, you know we're we're generally put together quite well. 
the, the human being and the human ego are, are pretty solid. We're like containers. And the job of the body and the brain and the ego is to keep the world out and to only let a very small trickle in so that we can deal with that and sort of walk through the world and make a living and procreate and and uh, eventually die. Um, but what happens in a paranormal event is that filter or that container somehow gets breached or compromised and more of the world comes rushing in. And so the answer to your question is the reason it doesn't happen more often is that usually the body, brain, and the ego are functioning properly and healthily and they're able to keep all of this stuff out. But in moments of crisis or illness or death or, or, or what have you, in these sort of crisis points, um, that body, brain, and that ego are temporarily compromised and the stuff comes rushing in. So I think that's a pretty good explanation for why it's relatively rare in any individual's life, but it's actually extremely common when you look at a total population. And if you're somebody, because of course we all are ultimately compromised, and we all ultimately suffer and die, and of course that's when paranormal stuff spikes is around those events. And it would also make sense then that when you are somebody who puts yourself in a position in your life where you're going to go out and look for this stuff, why you would have a higher number of experiences because you are now in that mindset of looking for it. You know, I've heard paranormal investigators say, oh, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years and I've had maybe one or two things happen to me that I can say are paranormal. Whereas I can say, hey, every time I go out, something happens. You know, it doesn't mean I that think, I'm right I, or wrong. Yeah I, it, yeah, I think people are different. I think we're put together differently. I can tell you with complete confidence that Willie Strieber is not put together like Jeff Kripal. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a dullard. I'm pretty thick. My body, brain, and ego are pretty stable and pretty thick. And so I don't experience the world as Willie experiences it. But I have absolutely no doubt that he does. I mean, I've been around him when he's done this, when he's had these experiences. He just interacts with the world in a completely different way than I do. He's, he's a different being. And I don't know why, um, but he is. And, and so I, just, I think that's part of the, the answer here is we are not all alike. We're, certain of us are much more porous to the, the world than the rest of us. And I think once we recognize that, we, we, we can understand why these things are rare and why it's so important to look at these extreme experiences as as um, as the real subjects of our research. Well, one of the words that I hear used quite frequently to describe people that just people in general is I you know I hear a resonance, resonance, and, and I know that that's something that Whitley has written about quite a bit. The idea of resonance, and that maybe there are just some people that are at a different frequency. So if that's said, then people should be able to kind of find a way to work their way through that ego and work their way through that limitation that they may have and, and get themselves into that higher resonance? Well, ideally, but of course, <laughs> that, 
that's not the case. I mean, I mean, this is why you know all religious systems posit something like this. They posit this ability for human beings to access some some way to to experience the transcendence, the transcendent or ultimate reality. But once they do that, they then have to explain why the rest of us don't. And so they come up with all these theories about why the rest of us don't. So I just think this has been a problem from day one for the species, is that a few of us have easy or almost natural access to these other states and these other dimensions, and the rest of us don't. And that might be a good thing. I mean, maybe that's there's some survival or, or evolutionary purpose to our dullness. I, I, I suspect there is, but, but I, I, I don't actually know. I don't know. I do think, though, that with... I mean, I have seen it myself. I've seen people who have gone into... Uh, investigations with us, to, into events with us, and been very close-minded to it, and had their mind opened up by an experience, and have been willing to say, okay, this kind of changes, this is a game-changer for me. But right. I think people just don't know what to do when that game has changed. They don't know how right. to play by those new rules anymore, and so it's kind of just right. like, I think I'm more open now, but you're not really living in a way that makes you more open. If you don't have a model to place the new data or the new experience, you will drop or forget the new experience. And that's, that's, the, that's the importance of what I earlier referred to as creating culture. We have to create a culture or a new worldview in which these things can find a home. Otherwise, they'll just remain weird, anomalous things that have no home, and we'll just keep ignoring them. So I'd, I'd like to be one of those people that helps to create that type of a culture. How do I do that? How do, how do we make that culture happen? Well, I would say you're, you are doing that. And isn't, isn't that what this radio show is about? Hopefully. That, and we talk a lot about snacks, too. But for the, for the most <laughs> part, we're trying to open snacks? those minds. Yeah, we talk a lot about snacks. Okay. Well, that's a different project. Right. And as far as we're concerned, it's all tied in. You can't you can't have one without the other. Right. But uh, one one of the one of the things, like, because a good friend of mine is uh, is a gentleman named John Tenney, and I don't know if you've ever uh, been able to come across him in, in his work, but he's no. he's somebody who, when he was a teenager, he said, "I'm going to go down this path of uh, investigating all things that are weird and unusual," and he has just lived now his life surrounded by. The weird, and not only when he's going through his day-to-day life do all these strange, unusual, and almost impossible things happen to him, but when you come into his orbit, they start to happen to you as well. And I think right. that, I think that that is exactly what you're talking about, that when you're putting yourself in a position to say, okay, this guy, John Tenney, seems like a regular, normal person, and I can, I, I, I respect his stories of these things happening so they must be true and then therefore you're going to go out and have the same weird experience i think that it does kind of create that culture and it does create that mindset and you can stay in it as long as those things keep happening and as long as you keep paying attention to them yeah and that's what i meant earlier when i said these are not objects in three-dimensional space that anyone can find and measure and agree on it depends on the person interacting with the world and if you enter that zone or that state of consciousness that, that John possesses or lives in, then these things start to happen because 
that's what they're about. They're about that state of consciousness. They're not about some treasure in the ground. And and one of the folks in our chat room, Scott, just mentioned, you know, he'd like to do an investigation without any devices. And I think that that's that's one of the things that's that's causing the limitations of people's mindsets opening up is that we're so hung up on the idea we have to prove what it is that's happening with some sort of data that we can back it up with, that we have to have some sort of meter that can measure the environmental changes or some sort of device that can record the experience and, and be able to share it back with people. And I think that that's actually what's limiting us more than anything is we're not just going in there and letting it happen. Well, bear in mind, what is the equipment being brought in for? I tell this to people all the time. It isn't so much to document the experience. Uh, the equipment is just an augmentation of your natural senses. But, but your EMF look- meter works like your skin does, measuring you know electromagnetic fields and galvanic response. Your audio recorder listens into frequencies your ears can't hear. Your IR cameras look at you know nanometer ranges your eyes can't pick up and stuff like but, that. But people have this refusal to believe that they can go and have an experience and then go share that experience with somebody else and have that person believe their experience. It's like, I'm going to tell you the story and then I'm also going to show you how these lights lit up. And I'm also going to show you this piece of footage or video that I caught or or play for you this recording that I picked up because we just can't believe each other enough when we're sharing the experiences themselves and those devices are getting in the way. Right. Well, again, so what they're assuming is that the only way to know something is through, again, the scientific method or through a set of technologies or machines. And that's important. I don't want to dismiss that. But, again, if paranormal phenomena are about both the objective physical world and the forms of human consciousness interacting with it, then we're never going to actually understand these things unless we take into account those forms of consciousness. And I would also argue that the ultimate piece of paranormal technology is actually the human body-brain. The, the human being is by far the most sensitive instrument ever invented. Nothing we've invented as a species comes close to the human being as, a, as, a, as essentially a paranormal um, piece of technology. It, it's funny because... I feel we, yeah. we, we say the same thing all the time. And yeah. when we do these events, we lay out all the equipment on a table. Yeah. Everything from old school dowsing rods to the latest meters and devices and gadgets and gizmos. And we always say to people, out of all of this, out of everything that you see in the room, what do you think is the one thing that's specifically made yeah. to measure the paranormal? And people will point to all the different devices. We tell them, no, the answer is you. You're the only one that can actually, <laughs> accurately experience the paranormal. None of these things, they're just, uh, they're, they're just supposedly there to quantify the byproduct of it. Augmentation. But, but you know, they also might be, the machines might be useful um, as permission. Mm-hmm. You know, so like take the dousing rod. I mean, I don't think the dousing rod does anything in itself, but when a dowser uses it, he or she is accessing his own clairvoyant or or telepathic abilities, and the rod is just like this kind of, forgive the phrase, fake technology to access his his or her own abilities. And I I wonder if the machines might actually help in the same way. They they give people permission to... 
to access their own abilities, unconsciously, of course. Right, you see the lights start to light up, and then you become more open to the idea that, okay, then something is happening, and then you can yeah. experience a little better yourself. I mean, for that reason yeah. alone, I'll keep buying AA batteries and putting them in there. Triple, <laughs> AAA batteries in most of my stuff. But. Device I mean, divination. Who knows? Who knows? We, we might actually invent a machine someday that can pick this stuff up. Well, there, I mean, there, there have been proposed machines in the past that are supposed to just be amplifications of the human. I'm thinking of... Uh, you know, there was the uh, spiritual. Uh, no, even before that, and during the spiritualist era, there was uh, uh, Coons invented the spiritual machine, which was supposed right. to be this big device that right. he was going to put his son in, and his son was going to be this great medium, and this would just kind of amplify his mediumship abilities. Yeah, I mean, I just, I actually just read about that, and my sense of that again is that that was just, you know, it's kind of like a placebo. It's it's allowing them to access the abilities that are that are they already have. Mm-hmm. Well, you could make the same uh, connection like with Wilhelm Reich and Orgone Energy, putting people in the cumulators. Yeah, the good old, the good old Orgone box. Yeah. It's, it, I think that anything like that, though, that can get people considering the possibility is yeah. helpful because I've been in rooms where there's, you know, hardened skeptics and, and even hardened cynics that aren't, aren't going to accept anything that happens to them and see something in them change when something right. happens. I've seen other ones who haven't. You know, I've seen I've seen true believers who have gone the other way because they've gone somewhere and something hasn't happened. And they said, gee, maybe maybe this stuff isn't real. And yeah. Well, again, I don't think there's a question of whether it's real or not, but that it's always relational. And that's why, why again, pure objectivity doesn't work because it's all about the subject and whether... The human being is is open to that or needs that at that particular moment in, in space and time. And by accepting the fact that the world is is more super and 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 more weird than we ever thought that it might have been, it kind of makes I would think there's kind of an inverse effect too, a little bit to make you more respectful of the things that we can't understand. So the things that we do have a handle on, the things that, you know, you're kind of glad that with all the things that we don't understand in this world, at least we have this. At least we have some things that we feel uh, are, are grounded in, I hate to use the term reality, but at least it, it's grounded in something that we can know and reach out and touch. And it kind of makes you more appreciative of, of what it is that we have mastered and have learned. Yeah. I guess, <laughs> you know, I... I love things like this. I, I like. I love UFOs. I, I love um, weird, strange things, and I think I love them because I don't understand them. And what they finally mean for me is that the world is much bigger than me, and much bigger than anything this human species has figured out yet. And I, I just find that delicious. I, I find that wonderful. I'd hate it, to live a life where I didn't have any more questions. Yeah. What's that? I'd, I'd hate to live the rest of my life not having any more questions. Yeah. You know, there, I always well, want another thing to reach out to. Yeah. yeah. Although that being said, what, 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 what do you think that UFOs are? What, if, if, <laughs> if you had a hazard guess, because this is one of the big debates that we always have on this show, is what are these things? Well. I mean, oh knowing God. Whitley and knowing his experiences, that gives you a little bit more of an insight than some of us That's might have. That's a big question. Well, you know, I don't know how deeply you read into the supernatural, but in the introduction I talk about what I call the wastebasket problem. 
and it, it's it's a it's an answer to your UFO question. I think what we call UFOs are actually a lot of different things that we confuse and that we throw in this waste basket called UFO. So I think in that basket there are probably secret government military operations. Um, there are probably hoaxed UFOs in there. There are certainly genuine encounters with aerial phenomena that have no explanation. There are abduction phenomena. There are crop circles, fake or real. All these things get thrown in this wastebasket and then shook, shook, and we can't understand it because we're actually looking at completely different things. Um, so I, that's kind of my weak answer to the question. My, my strong answer is that I suspect that UFOs are finally something spiritual. Um, and by that I don't mean religious. I don't think they can be framed in any known religion, but that they have something to do with the human soul and something to do with ultimate purpose in life. And um, we, we interpret them or experience them as machines today because we live in a machine age. We live in a mechanistic, materialist age. And we often hear of the extraterrestrial invasion because the, the UFO emerged in a Cold War and um, within a mythology of invasion. Um, but that all of those are inadequate, finally, and that they're finally something spiritual that's trying to happen. Archetypes. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not... I, I, the Jungian thing... I, Jung was actually wrote a very prescient book about UFOs, the Flying Saucer book, and yeah. he, of course, invoked archetypes, but I'm not quite invoking archetypes here. Um, but it, I guess suppose it is resonant with what Jung was trying to say in that late book of his. See, I like the wastebasket theory myself because I figure that at some point I can dump all those theories out and just put the wastebasket on my head, and then the UFOs can't read my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why I was a fan of it. Uh, but uh, there, I mean, good, good, good luck with that, by the way. <laughs> there are there's there's so many things that when you look at them from the perspective of okay, let's just say if. And then, you know, like if we if we were willing to accept more of the if and get to that and then, I think it almost kind of works backwards, that we can really start to figure things out if we just kind of accept that these things are real and accept that they're true. Then we can reverse engineer the reasons why and reverse engineer the, the, the answers to our bigger questions, like like Bigfoot. You know, if, if, if there is a Bigfoot out there, why haven't we found a, a carcass? Why haven't we found enough of a smoking gun to prove that they exist. Well I think I think the Bigfoot sightings are probably finally spiritual as well or or occult if you want to use that language. I I doubt there's a species out there we haven't discovered, but I have no doubt that people have experienced you know, big hairy people in the forest. I love uh, my friend Greg Newkirk puts it best. Bigfoot is a ghost. <laughs> Bigfoot is what? Bigfoot is a ghost. That's he has, They have T-shirts that say that even. Yeah, I mean that's that would be pretty much what I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Moniz, I know that you've been doing a lot of Bigfoot research. I was going to say the plaster casts I have at home would uh, beg to differ, but, but, but 
how is that any different than if you know there's there's things that are left behind from ghostly activity too? There's things that we can find that it, we can if no different than yeah, doing I a plaster mean, ghosts, cast. So ghosts have physical effects in the environment, mm-hmm. and of course, I, I don't doubt that that people find bigfoot prints on the ground either. But you know, UFOs leave marks on the ground too, and burn marks and yep, I've analyzed most grass and all kinds of stuff. So I again, this is what I meant by the paranormal. It it always has this physical dimension to it. But it's never quite enough to prove anything, and there's always this subjective element or this this human element that that's part of part of the equation. And and maybe these physical signs are, like you said, just giving us enough for us to keep asking the questions and and, and paying <laughs> yeah. attention to it. Well, it doesn't. It's not going to add up to anything. Yeah, I mean, they give us enough that we can't land in a purely subjective or mental explanation, like they're just hallucinations. They're not just hallucinations. They're not. But they never give us enough that we can say, oh, there's an actual species that we've now discovered, or there's a machine that landed on the White House lawn. That never happens. So we can't fall into the physical, completely empirical explanation, and we can't fall into the mental, purely hallucinatory explanation. We're always caught in, in the middle. It's it's almost like I, I I hate to try to simplify things more than they need to be, but it's almost like saying you know the the, the donkey and the carrot that the donkey keeps chasing the carrot, but he can never quite get it. But what ends up happening is the donkey crosses quite a bit of distance trying to get to that carrot. So even though we're never going to get that carrot, we're getting we're on a journey as we're doing it. You know, we're we're going quite a distance as we're trying to get it, and we might never we're never going to get it, but at least we have gone so far from where we were before. Well, what if we just stop looking for it in, as an object, and we stop looking for it or demeaning it as just a subjective hallucination, and just sat in the middle of all of that and just listened? I, I that that's essentially the answer of the book of Whitley is. You know, in Whitley's language, the, the secret is to sit with the question and not to fall into some easy answer. Absolutely. It's a, I couldn't think of a better way to leave it than that. <laughs> well, Good. Jeff, let everybody know uh, where they can follow along with your work and, and how they can get the book and, and all of your well, books. Well, so my books are all available on Amazon. You just type my name in and, and they'll all pop up. But you can also go to my website where they're all summarized. I don't sell anything on my website. It's a strictly academic website. It's called, it's at you, And uh, there I summarize the books and, and the larger project in which they're all chapters. Well, uh, we thank you very much for joining us. And, and for and I know it's terrible to have to say this, but the, the way that a lot of people look at things, you know, by having an academic that, pursues these topics and, and looks into these topics and can talk about them in a way that makes it all make sense for people, it helps us. So so thank you for doing what it is that you do when I know that it's probably something that a lot of academia kind of raises an eyebrow at you for, for going down that path. Well, yeah, some of them do and some of them don't. You'd be surprised. There's a lot of, there's a lot of enthusiasm for it here as well, but I appreciate what you guys are doing and I, I, I think it's important work, so thank you too. Thank you very much. You have a great night, and I definitely hope that we get to speak with you again. 
All right. I promise no it. technical problems next time. <laughs> right. Okay, no problem. Don't I, worry about I it. I can't. I can't. You can't hold me to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, have a great guys. night. Bye-bye. That is uh, Jeff Kripal. And, again, as he mentioned, you can go to his website. It's kripal.rice.edu. You can find all of his information there. You can find his bio. You can find some essays. You can find all the different projects that he's worked on. i got to say that's, that's it's one of my favorite discussions that we have ever had on this show. Very knowledgeable. Very, very, very good guy. And not it's not a conversation that you can say, okay, well, I think I know where this conversation is going. And I understand, you know, this so many different ways. This gonna, I'm going to have to go back and listen to this again and again and kind of digest some of the ways that we were going. And it, it's what I liked about it is it's not, it's not just the what. It's the why. It's the why and, and, and why it matters, which is, I think, the, the stuff that's not being addressed enough with what it is that we do here. Well, he was able to articulate himself very well. Uh, I mean, he wasn't overbearing with religiosity. A lot of we we've had a few people that we've run into that they're well. I think religion gets a little ahead of. Them. Well, I think when somebody studies religion, yeah, they're able to keep it at a little bit of a there. There's an there's an arm's distance between it, right? And I think that 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 helps. And uh, one of the it's one of the things that we've actually been missing in a lot of the discussions that we've had over the years is having somebody that has a, a wide-ranging knowledge of religion. And we didn't re- really even start to get yeah. into that with him. Like, we could do a whole other show just on the religious implications of the paranormal. We touched upon a little bit there, but how different cultures and different belief systems process it. Right. Oh, just uh, so many different ways to go. Such a great guest. And uh, and kudos to Chris for, for setting all that up. Uh, that's just, again, one of my favorite discussions. And uh, it, it made me think of something that I actually was talking with somebody about just recently. I was talking about, with my friend Nick, we were discussing some of the different stuff that we've done. I think it was Nick. We were talking about some different things we've done media-wise over the years. And I happened to mention probably the first time you and I ever went on television to promote Spooky South Coast. So we're talking 2006, maybe early 2007. We did that show, The Rational Individualist, with Steve Grossman. yeah. I was just thinking about that studio today. over there. I was thinking about it just the other day, and and, it, and it, I was reminded of it in this discussion where we go in and we sit down, very amicable conversation, you know, very very yep. jovial. And as soon as we sat down on the set and, and the, the camera started rolling, it oh, turned yeah. into an attack. Yep. And the <clears throat> very first thing that this gentleman said to Matt Moniz is, "Matt Moniz, my first question to you as a chemist, as a scientist." What are you doing looking into the paranormal? And my your job. answer was, my job. And <laughs> it just, that just kicked off an entire 30 minutes of hostile discussion from there. <laughs> but, it, and it was, you know, at the end, we're all in the parking lot being friends again. But it was very much, you know, that, that mindset of, why are you paying attention to this? Why are you wasting your time with this? And you saying, but it, if you open your mind to it, it makes a whole world of difference. And it's the same thing that we were talking about here with Jeff Kripal. Well, it's when, like I told people in the past, going through school and things like that, teachers would be, why are you interested in this? And there's nothing to this. Okay, here's a $100 bill. You show me an unbiased study that conclusively proves something one way or the other, you get to keep it. If not, at the end of the week, if you can't find one, you owe me 100 bucks. It's the 800-pound gorilla that, you know, science, you know, has 
basically not looked at. It's like, I don't want to look here because if I do, there's going to be questions I can't answer. And you know, Speaking yeah. of questions that you can't answer, I'm not going to ask you why, as a student, you had a $100 bill in your pocket that you could just throw out there. And I'm sure you had a newspaper route. That's yeah. why, folks. It was the 80s. It was a different time. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'll leave that as that. But, um, yeah, but uh, this, again, I'm... I'm going to go back and listen to this one on podcast, and you can as well. We'll have it up on the podcast feed. We'll have it up on the YouTube. The YouTube. What am I? <laughs> what am I? Eighty years old? Oh, you kids in the YouTube! It's just going to ruin you. Uh, but we'll, you know, we'll we'll fix it after a little bit of a technical difficulty there. I will no longer come on and rah rah cheerlead for how awesome that we've done with technology because technology likes to slap me back in the face when I do that. So um, I won't do that next time. I promise. I, I know why and who did it. Who did it? I'll tell you off there. Okay. And before we go, we've had a lot of fun, and we've talked about a number of different things, but we want to take it to a serious turn for a minute uh, because we did lose a member of the Spooky yeah. South Coast family this week. Yeah, we lost uh, Lucky, Michael Lucky Lukowiak. Uh He died a couple of days ago of a heart attack or complications. Very surprising. Yeah, last person in the world I ever would have thought. I, I, if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say the guy probably did a hundred miles a week on his bike. Correct. He was a sponsored marathon bike bicycler, and uh, it was a shock to everybody. Yeah. And 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 the fact that it happened so suddenly, yeah, so quickly. Uh, you know, we didn't really even share any information about it because, you know, obviously we're seeing all the information from friends and family, but it's a private thing. We don't want to be putting things out into the spooky South Coast audience, but there is uh, an, an effort underway, yeah. and we're limited here on the radio how much we can talk about it uh, in terms of that just because of some of the rules and regulations of, of how we promote things here. But obviously we, we know that the spooky South Coast audience is very generous, very giving, very loving, and uh, and this is one of your own that we have lost because Lucky was part of this from the very beginning. Uh, very well known in the uh East Coast, and he helped with a lot of different shows. Most people don't realize he he was an illustrator as well as a photographer, and um, he did stuff in the background that most people right. don't. But, you know. I mean, he was also somebody that we've had here as a yeah, co-host uh, and as a guest, yes. and if you go back into yeah. past episodes, you'll find him. One of my favorite moments with Lucky was when we did the uh, War of the Worlds, the Worlds episode. Yeah. And, you know, he called in from New Jersey. And, right. and, and literally, what well, he was like the only part of the story that was true. Yeah. He, was that he actually, actually was in New Jersey because he lived there. <laughs> so uh, we are going to have it up on our website for everybody to uh, to take part in, for everybody to, uh, if you want to, make a donation to this fundraising cause uh, to help out with the expenses because, again, it was sudden. Uh, the last person in the world you would expect to have something like this happen to uh, because he was so very active and, and just – I mean, there's no other way. He's very alive. Yeah. You know, there's no other way to put it. And uh, so also, it also goes to show that, you know, you never can tell. So it does make every moment of every day important. It does make you realize that you have to appreciate every moment that you're given. So for all the moments that you're happy that you have and all the moments that you're happy are coming forward, throw a couple bucks that way and, and, and help that family out. Because, again, nobody nobody's thinking for a 42-year-old guy, we have to start. Yeah planning final expenses, especially somebody who was so full of life. So we'll have that up on SpookySouthCoast.com tomorrow. If you want to make a donation, we appreciate it. Uh, we will be back next week for another episode of the show, and I think we'll be back pretty much every week. There's 
you know, there's not a lot of stuff that will be keeping us from coming in here and talking about the paranormal. So until next week, for Matt, for Matt, for Chris, for Stephanie, for Ashley, I'm Tim. We want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>